a, um, a series on the book of 1 John, and uh, this morning we're going to take a look at chapter 3, and you know, it's, it's impossible for us in our few minutes we have together to, uh, I mean, you, know, you, could, you could literally take any book of the Bible and spend an entire year going through it. So we're going to mine out of it, I, I pray, and I hope that you know, what we talk about this morning will meet you in, in what the Holy Spirit wants to speak in your life through His Word. And uh, the title I'm taking for this chapter this morning, I'm borrowing from Dr. Craig Keener in his commentary on the book um, from InterVarsity Press, and that's Whose Side Are You On? Whose Side Are You On? And the, the, um, uh, he makes a, a, an opening statement about the book as a whole. And I just want to kind of br- go through and break, through, break down and go through because he's answering some questions. How I many you know when we're reading the Bible, we're reading like one side of a conversation very often? Very often there's something that's going on over here and the authors are addressing uh, something that's happening. And so uh, we can take the Bible and we can see, you know, get, take the issues out of it and see how they apply to our lives. But it's all, sometimes it's really helpful for us to kind of say, what was going on that was actually being addressed in the moment? What were they talking about? What, what's, what's the background there? And Dr. Keener says this. He says, on the one hand, the issue in view might be simply some false prophets advocating compromises. Perhaps even with the imperial cult to save one's life. Hang on one second. I need to blow up the text on my screen for me. There we go. So on the one hand, we, he, you know, we're, he's definitely dealing with false prophets. People who are prophesying things that, um, uh, that are advocating, advocating compromises. This, this, this whole concept of the imperial cult. Has anybody heard of the imperial cult before? Has anybody not heard of the imperial cult before? So everybody knows about the imperial cult. No, okay, thank you. The imperial cult was this. It was worship of the emperor. It was the worship of, uh, whoever the Roman emperor was. And, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of like today. In some places, this was a big thing. In other places, it was, yeah, this is what we had to do. There's some people who did it because it was the politically correct thing to do. There are other people who were seriously into it. And if you weren't doing it, they were going to, I mean, you literally could be jailed. Your life could be threatened. You could lose your job and all these types of things. Well, the Jews were exempted from this. The Jews didn't have to do it. They were the one people group in the world who didn't have to do it because they had a legal religion in Rome and they could, as long as they were following their legal religion, they didn't have to follow Roman pagan laws. And so they were exempted. But there's a problem here. As, 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 uh, uh, more and more believers, as more and more Jews and non-Jews are following Jesus, and, and Jews within the synagogues don't like those who are following Jesus. They start kicking them out. And so now they've become an illegal religion. They're actually called by the Romans atheists. Actually called atheists. Because they don't believe in the pantheon. They don't believe in the gods. They certainly don't believe. Caesar called himself the son of God. He considered himself the son of God. Well, you know, if you're, if you're a believer... You're, you're going, well, I'm sorry, you know, Caesar, you're a good guy and everything, but you ain't no son of God. Well, that, that, that might, you know, lead to a very short haircut very quick. 
And so if, if this, is, this is what's going on, and this is what's happening in the environment at the time, and this is one of the things, so it was a big deal. There were people inside the church who were trying to figure out how can we maintain our Christianity and live in this world at the same time? Maybe we'll redo the doctrines a little bit, rethink them, because surely God didn't mean that we might have to have difficulty as a believer in this world. And so, uh, uh, on the other hand, the issue might be one of the movements of false teaching that was developing towards full-blown second-century Gnosticism. About a hundred years after this, this this whole teaching comes along, and we we still get uh, essence of it in the church today. That physical world bad, spiritual world good. This is Gnosticism, full-blown. And so it's like, as long as I'm seeking to make a connection in the spirit, who really cares what happens in the physical? It doesn't really matter. If I do something bad in the physical, well, it wasn't really me doing it. It was an illusion. This was Gnosticism. And so there were seeds of this that were even in the times of, of of John writing this letter. There was this group called the Docetists. They believed that Christ was divine, but only seemed to become human. So what did, what, the way they dealt with it, they said, look, so Jesus was divine. He's the divine son of God. We believe that. And so he came down, but he didn't have a real physical body. He just looked like he had a physical body. And that's how they were dealing with this. This whole concept was very much in Greek thought and Greek uh, philosophy of the day that the physical was uh, was bad and, and, and the spirit good. And so this group started saying, well, Jesus wasn't really flesh. He just looked like he was. Then there were the Serinthians, not the Corinthians, the Serinthians. They followed this guy named Serinthus. And they believed that, that the Christ spirit merely came on Jesus. I've actually heard this teaching today, that Jesus was just a regular human being born just like anybody else and then and then the Christ spirit came on him and so he really wasn't the son of God he just had to have the son of God's spirit came on him it could have been anybody he was the one that was picked and so uh and so what you saw is you saw the spirit of God moving through him but you weren't really seeing one who was both fully human and fully divine at the same time they denied he was actually one the one and only Christ but here's the point beyond any dispute that John is definitely dealing with in his letter. There are primarily troublemakers who were secessionists. What were secessionists in that day? They, they were people who had come in, they were part of the community, they had grown up, and then they left. John addresses, John addresses those who had withdrawn from that community. And he gives two tests. And this is the one thing that we get in this letter over and over. He gives two tests. There are two tests for a true Christian. Number one is moral ethical keeping test. Keeping the commandments, especially loving of the Christian community. Are we following the commandments that that have been passed on to us by our Lord? And number two, a faith test. Do we understand who Jesus is? And that's the whole letter. The whole letter is is those two things. Now, I, I use the term letter. Uh, so the, the, the two tests for a true Christianity, a right view of Jesus and a right view of how to live this life. Uh, is your life correct in how you're living? In other words, do I believe in Jesus and am I demonstrating that belief uh, by how I live? And what John, the point John's making, he makes this over and over, is you cannot separate belief and action. There's, on the one hand, Wrong belief will lead you to the wrong action. If you believe wrongly about Jesus, you can do all kinds of crazy things and call it Jesus. Don't we have that today? 
Well, Jesus is just love. And because Jesus is love, we can accept everybody doing anything because we're loving. Right? Wrong belief about Jesus. He's a tolerant God, right? Because he's tolerant, we tolerate everybody. We judge not, lest we, lest we be judged. Anybody ever heard these things before? Well, but there's also scripture says he's coming back to judge. There's, you know, it's not that he's tolerant, it's that he's long-suffering. We're not to pronounce judgment on someone. We're to love them right where they are, accept them, embrace them, and bring them to the truth. We're not to put this truth aside. And so there's these, there's these ideas that are held in tension in, in proper belief. And so on the other hand, to claim, to claim belief without living it out is hypocrisy. It's a false belief. It's not a real belief. So the, the structure is, as, uh, as Pastor Terry's mentioned in going through it, the structure, there's, it, the scholars have a hard time trying to figure it out. There's no structure to this. In fact, some go, well, it's, it, it's a letter because we know it's a letter, but it's not structured like a letter. So we don't want to just call it a letter. Well, maybe it's a sermon and it looks like a sermon, but it's got these other aspects. And so John just write, he writes different than everybody else. He just comes at it different. He doesn't follow the standard structures at the time in, in this, in this, uh, uh, in this letter. Letter essay, letter sermon. At a number of places, it's hard to tell where one unit of thought ends and another begins, since particular sentences seem to function as connections or hinges between the two units. But this difficulty only reflects John's experience of the Christian life as a seamless blend of love and belief, belief and love, neither holding sway over the other, with both making constant reference to one another. The text of 1 John, including its apparent lack of outline in its own way, embodies this experience. So what happens when we're reading this letter, as we're going forth, John ebbs and flows between these concepts, that you need to love your brother, you need to live this love, and guess what? That has to come out a real true belief about Jesus. You need to know who Jesus was, is, and, 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 uh, and, and who he is in, as divine and who he is as man. And guess what? That means you're going to love your brother and you're going to love your neighbor and you're going to see this and it keeps going back and forth between these two things. That's why scholars have a hard time pinning down these points of, 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 um, okay, well, here's an outline of point one and here's an outline of point two. He moves back and forth. It's a very Jewish way of thinking and connecting these two together. So I say that because as we go through the, the text today, we're going to see it move back and forth. It's like, well, I thought he talked about that. Yeah, he does. And then he goes over it again and then he goes over it again and it flows back and forth in this. So if you've ever read this letter and kind of had a hard time following, it's probably for a good reason. He's not thinking the way we think. He's not writing the way we're used to hearing. And he's, but he's, but he's building this case back and forth where they're connected together. All right. So let's, let's jump into chapter three here and where we are. And this first verse of chapter three starts out like this. See what kind of love the father's, see what kind of love the father's given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And, okay, so if you've ever read that before, it's easy just to go read right over it, jump on and go to the next verse and miss that this seems weird. 
I don't know if that's weird to anybody else, but when I'm reading and I step back and I see sections like this and they're weird, I've never, what I'm about to say, I've never read this verse this way before until just, you know, as I'm studying through this text. He's, he's like starting off with, it's this fantastic news. How many think it's fantastic news that God loves us? How many think it's fantastic news that we get to become his children? And then he turns around right after that and says, the reason why the world doesn't know us is it didn't know him. You see, we've used this verse over and over to talk about how much God loves us, but I think the reason why John's talking about this is because they're in the middle of conflict. They're in the middle of getting kicked out of synagogues. They're in the middle of of being uh, um, persecuted in the community. And so if God's loving me, how does this feel like love? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like if you go back into Genesis and you read the story of Joseph. Go back, check it out. We're not going to do it this morning. Start in chapter 37 and go through 50. Read Joseph's story. Here is Joseph. His, his, he's the beloved of his father, just like this, the beloved of his father. He's the beloved of his father. His father gives him a mission. I'm on the mission for God. He goes and he sees his brothers. Wow, shouldn't there be love between the brothers? John says the test of a true Christian is that you love your brother. And what do they do? They hate him. They hate him. They throw him in a pit. They talk about killing him. And they decide to sell him as a slave. He, he's sold. He goes down to Egypt. And he knows there is no chance I'm ever going home again. I have literally just been cut off from everything I held dear in my life. Everything that was important to me in life. I'm literally a slave in a foreign land. And the Bible puts this weird phrase right after that. It says, and Yahweh was with him. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we are children of God, and so we are. And the reason why the world doesn't know you is because it didn't know him. Joseph, the Father has loved you. It doesn't matter your circumstances. There's something bigger than your circumstances going on here. There's something more than your circumstances that's happening here. And this is, this is the sense that I'm getting that's going on here. Now, um, it's really important to know this. Really important. In the ancient world, this would have been idiomatic. They just would have automatically understood this in the ancient world. That, that uh, it was commonplace that it, children inherited their natures from their fathers. I mean, it was so much so they used to say, look, you know, if you're an adulterer, then your children are going to turn out just like you. I mean, they believe that, that you inherited to nature. So if this is the understanding, and John, what is John trying to tell us when he says we are children of God? We are born anew. We have a new nature. It's a God nature, and it should make you and me different if that's true. We should look like him. And that fact is his love poured on us. He's given us a new nature. This would have been idiomatic. This would have been automatically understood in the time John's writing this. They would have, I'm a, I'm a child of God. That's a radical statement when John's writing this and what he's meaning by it. All right. So a lot of these, a lot of what we're getting here in this letter are things he's given us in his gospel. And I'm just going to point out some of the connections to his gospel as we go through this. 
here it is in John. This is the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, verse 10. It says, He, Jesus, was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people didn't receive him. And Jesus said, it is enough that, that the uh, uh, disciple should be like the teacher. What is he saying? This, how many have ever read the, the Gospels, and you watch and you see Jesus do this miracle, and then right after he does the miracle, it talks about somebody who's got hatred in their heart, or bitterness in their heart, who wants to put him to death, or want to do something. Anybody think that's weird? I've always thought, I mean, it's like, if you saw a miracle performed right in front of you, would you not be going, okay, what's going on? Or would you, I got to hear the message behind that. I got to see what's going on. Or would you be saying, I need to stamp that out? Why? What's going on here? What is, what's happening here? And this is what John's saying. It's about what nature do you have? Or whose nature do you have? Whose nature do you have? Let's keep going here. He, um, he, he says the same thing in John uh, chapter 16. This is at the Last Supper. So Jesus is sitting at the Last Supper, and he turns to his disciples at the Last Supper, and he says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Isn't that a crazy scripture? You imagine killing somebody and think you're serving God? Well, the Apostle Paul did. Apostle Paul thought he was serving God. He was going, hey, Lord, I'm going to go stamp out this false faith that's in this world. Until he what? Saw Jesus. Jesus goes on, verse 3, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Jesus is saying something happens to us when we come to know the Father. We get a new nature. Something changes. Something is different. It's not good enough to say, I believe. If you actually believe, you will have his nature. But I have said these things to you that when, the, when their hour comes, you, remem- you may remember that I told you them. See, the Bible's chock full of these little statements when Jesus is saying, look, you're going to go through it. You're going to experience it, and you're not going to remember it. So I'm telling you now, so you remember it. How many of us need to be encouraged? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll speak for myself. You need to hear this over and over and over. In chapter 17... O righteous Father, he's, this is Jesus's, this is the true Lord's prayer right here, because this is the Lord actually praying. We, we get a window into the G, Jesus talking to the Father and hearing his heart in this prayer in chapter 17 of, of the gospel. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you see what he's saying? Now, let me tell you what he's not saying. Hey, God's name's Yahweh. Hey, God's name's Yahweh. Hey, God's name's Yahweh. It's not, he's not saying, when I've made known your name, it's not, he's not going, they all knew what his name was. They could read the, the, this, the, the habit that we have of, of not putting God's name in the scripture. That came much later after Jesus. God's name was in the scripture back when, when they were reading it. They knew what God's name was. They didn't have a question about it. Uh, that's not what he meant. What he meant was he is demonstrating the character and nature of God. 
He's demonstrating the character and nature. I've made it known. And then what is his desire? What is his prayer to the Father? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you catch what this means? I'll tell you first level that it means is that we're to know that he loves us. That's the first level, but it goes beyond that. We're to actually have his character and nature where we not only know he loves us, but we want to what? Love others. How do we know that? Because we've come to know the father. We've come to know the father. All right. Um, Then he says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become. This is in John, the gospel of John chapter one, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, he, and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, all of these ideas just packed in one or two verses all together, just like that. What is this? Right belief, understanding who Jesus is, coming to get this revelation. Oh my goodness, the morning star rising up in your hearts, as Peter puts it, gives us such illumination, such light that all of a sudden we get a new nature and we are different. What did they say about the disciples over and over? He, they, they were the ones with Jesus. They, they were with Jesus. Weren't they with Jesus? They were with Jesus. They were with Jesus. They knew that they were with Jesus. Why? Why? Would someone know whether or not we've been with Jesus? Can, we, can someone ask that same question? Would someone go, you, that, you were with Jesus? I'm going to pick on my wife here for a minute. She was in a work situation, a work setting. And was actually kind of quiet this whole particular weekend. I, actually, I won't even go there. I'm going to do a different story. Uh, uh, she was talking to a coworker who who um, said that the, everything they did, they were led by a spirit. They had a spirit who was leading them. And so they they this. She called my wife uh, and wanted to talk about a work situation, and they were talking about it. And my wife was like, "I don't really know what the answer to this is." So she began to pray, and the Lord gave her an answer. And so after they got to talking for a while, she said, well, did you try this or have you tried that? And the person goes, hmm, you know, I have a spirit who leads me and guide me. And I think you do too. And I think your spirit just gave you that answer. Yeah. Okay. She'll tell me later everything I said wrong in that story, but it's close. (laughs) It's close. So they lost the keys at work. They couldn't find the keys anywhere. And it's her day off. And they call her at home and they say, we can't find the keys to the closet. And she was like the last one there. And, and you know, the question in her mind is, how much of my responsibility is my day off? How much responsibility is it for me to find the keys? Well, you know, in the fact that I may have lost them, I have to go at least that far. And so she literally was praying and going through her mind, Lord, help me find these keys. Help me remember where I put them. And she's not remembering. And so she literally goes back to work that day on her day off. And they're looking everywhere. They can't find them. And the Holy Spirit speaks to her and says, they're under the file cabinet. And she goes, that's weird. 
They're, 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 what? they're under the file. Said, That's weird. Move the file cabinet. So finally she goes, okay. She goes over and she's starting moving all the stuff so she could move the file cabinet. And, and the people are like, what are you doing? She goes, I'm looking under the file cabinet. <laughs> like, why are you doing that? So they move the file cabinet and there they were. Far back, not just like on the edge, far back under where they would have never been found. The Holy Spirit. And the people were like, how did you know to look there? She said, well, I've been praying all morning for the Lord to show me. And while I was here, the Lord just spoke to me and said, they're under the file cabinet. Silence. Would people look at you and say, you've been with Jesus? There's all kinds of little ways in which people can look and say, have you been with Jesus? And don't everybody call my house when you lose your keys. <laughs> all right. So uh, let's jump on to the next verse. It says this, beloved, we are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because he, we shall see him as he is. John, I mean, the logic John uses here, how, how he gets to all these things. But what is he saying is this? He's saying, we are now God's children. This is a fact. It's not something we're waiting for. It's not about getting to heaven. It's not about getting to the other side. You are already in the kingdom of God here and now. But it is not complete. There is a time in which it will be complete. And the, how complete it will be, you will actually be glorified. You will be glorified if you have known Jesus. You will be just like he is when he appears. Now, how would John know that? Because John has seen it. Before before uh, uh, Jesus was crucified, a few weeks beforehand, John, Jesus takes Peter, J- James, and John up to the top of a mountain, and he they shows him, okay, let me show you glory. I mean, it was so amazing. They couldn't even figure out words of what to say. They've seen it. They know what's happening. We have to get this mindset in us. It's not about going to heaven. It's about the glory that is to be revealed in us. It's when you know Jesus, that is the glory that is going to be revealed through you. And guess what? That is already in you. I once heard a pastor say this who was preaching on the transfiguration. He said the miracle wasn't that for 30 some years Jesus, I mean the miracle wasn't that Jesus transfigured. The miracle was for 30 some years he held it back. If the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, all of that glory is already in you. And John says, this is what he says. Here's the very next part of this verse, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If we understood that, if we believed that, if we're living that, it's going to lead to us behaving a certain way. We're going to what? Purify ourselves. We're going to what? We're going to wrestle and struggle with the worldliness in us because we want the worldliness in us out of us. That's what that means. All right, how do I know? It'll come up again because he keeps bringing it up. Let's keep going. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. 
This is um, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The Bible gives us some of these phrases in different places where it defines what sin is. Paul says anything not of faith is sin. Uh, chapter 4, we get to this next week, we'll get another definition. Right here, he's defining it as lawlessness. It's a very specific word, and, and, and it ties back to Paul writes chapters on this whole concept. And the concept is this. The law of God is holy. The law of God is good. The law of God is just. It prescribes what the character and nature of God looks like when it is lived out on earth and how we're to live. Uh, it, it, it tells us that the law of God is not burdensome. Uh, John actually uses language like this. It's not burdensome. It's not difficult. But, but, so, so sin then is very simple. Sin is when you practice none of that. That's sin. Sin is lawlessness. When I say what is good, holy, and just, I don't care. I care what I want. That's, that's what he's saying what sin is. And he says, now, what, now what's interesting here, it's everyone who makes a practice of sinning. So to make a practice of sinning, and it's really important we get this concept, because I've had the conversation with a lot of believers who are like, you know, I struggle with this particular sin over and over and over again, and I really wrestle, and I keep praying, am I just not a believer? Is there something wrong and something broken? Well, we're actually going to address that a little bit more later, but that's not what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying right here, very clearly is if you're practicing it, it's because that is your nature. That's how you live. You don't even care about what's good, holy, and just, except for how it might benefit you. That's practicing lawlessness. That's what it means. All right, so um, I love this uh, quote from Susanna Wesley. This was in a letter that she wrote. Uh, Susanna Wesley was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, and... Um, uh, this, she wrote this June 8th. This was written in 1725. She says this, take this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, whatever obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things, in short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. Isn't that an amazing definition? This is, this is what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said that you shall not murder. Well, I tell you, if you call somebody a fool in your heart, you're in danger of hellfire. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, because again, John gets to this again later in the letter. He comes back to these things. This is the concept. Sin isn't about, well, and here's, here's what he's trying to say. And this is the essence of it. It's not about us as believers going, I'm going to do everything I can to try to not sin. Because when you do that, what are you focused on? It's not a, it's not a rhetorical. What are you focused on if I'm trying not to sin? You're focused on sin. It's about coming to Jesus and experiencing him, abiding him, loving him, and letting him wash us, cleanse us, transform us, continual repentance. And what I mean by repentance, I mean proper repentance. Wrong repentance, wrong repentance is when I'm coming to God because I'm afraid of getting punished or I want a blessing. I'm afraid of getting punished or I want a blessing. 
Why? Because that's me. Proper repentance is when I come to receive his grace and let it wash me, let it change me. Let, let, let me just give him all of my junk. Let me give him everything that, that's, that's the, this darkness I don't want in my life anymore and receiving his grace. Keeping that open relationship with him. All right, verse five. You know what? Uh, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin. In him, there is no sin. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this verse. He develops it out in other places. But the point being, he, the, the point he's making here is that it's in him in which we are washed away from sin, in which our sin is taken away. He was sinless. He was perfect in the flesh as a human. And he is our source for freedom from sin. And he goes on. He says this, no one... Who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children. Little children. And so it's a loving way of talking to his disciples. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the reason. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. When he's saying that word seed, it's once again talking about being a child. He's using that that family language. God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident Who are the children of God? And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. All right. So whose side are you on? This is what John's asking. Whose side are you on? Now, again, we need to make some distinctions here. Because John's not saying that once you come to Christ, you never struggle, you never doubt, you never deal with the the flesh, you never have these problems. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, there is a nature of the devil, and he's going to bring it out more in the next couple of verses. There is a nature of the devil, and that nature is death. What did the devil bring? The wages of sin is what? So when we are in the world, we're spiritually dead. We don't understand. We can't see. But when, if you have actually experienced Jesus, and this is his point, this is how he starts the letter. Our heart is that you have fellowship with Jesus. When you actually see Jesus, when you get a grasp of who Jesus is, you begin to hunger and thirst. You begin to go, wow, that's what I desire. You don't run from him when you're in darkness and sin. You run to him. But when, when you are committed to darkness, what do you do? You turn the light off when it turns on. That's what he's saying. When he says, whose side are you on? Look, I want to be really careful here because we can read these, these statements and these contrasts, right? And, uh, um, and we can say, uh, uh, let, let me put it, put it a different way. Has anybody ever met someone who is not a Christian who's done something good? Go be honest. You ever met somebody who's not a Christian? All the time. Every day. Well, how can you turn around and say they're of the devil if they're doing good things? Hmm. So is John right? Is he saying? No, what he's saying is this. What he's saying is 
do the good things that we do dem- uh, um, uh, get us to Jesus? That's not a, a trick question. Do the good things that we do get us to Jesus? No. What gets us to Jesus? Seeing who he is and receiving him. And that opens up a, a spiritual illumination in our heart that makes no sense to the world. It doesn't make sense. It has to be spiritually discerned. discerned. It has to be spiritually understood. That's, and he's going to get to this at the end of the chapter. What makes all the difference in the world is, have you received the spirit of Jesus? And if you have, it's going to look like the character and nature of God himself. God is love. Jesus laid down his life. All of these things are what's going to be in your life. If you have not, if you have not, then you are spiritually dark. And that darkness you have, because that is the works of the devil. It's what he did to ensnare the entire world, and Jesus came to destroy that. That's what Jesus came to destroy. That's what he's saying here. All right, let's keep going. Therefore, or since therefore, the children share in the flesh and blood. This is, this is the writer of Hebrews making the same point about the power, uh, power of Jesus. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, we share in Jesus. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might, what? Destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. To be in darkness is to be in slavery. Jesus came to set us free out of that. So for us then, and and here's the key, this is kind of what John's talking about, this is what's going on. There are teachers in the, in the, in the church at the time, we're saying, look, live how you want, do what you want. If you gotta figure out how to, if you gotta do a little sinning because we're living in this Roman world in order to get along with the Roman world, that's fine, that's good. As long as you have Jesus, you're okay. And John's saying, no, no. You are living under the influence of the devil if you were doing that. It may cost, it may be difficult, it may be hard, but we are to live in the light regardless of what's going on around us. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, John goes on, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. He's taking this example from Cain. Cain hated Abel for one reason and one reason only. Because Abel worshipped God. Abel worshipped God. He worshipped him. That's all. Did Abel do anything to hurt Cain? Did Abel go over to Cain's house and take his grain? Did, <laughs> did Abel put him down? Did Abel? No, Abel worshipped God and that was enough to get Cain to kill him. And, and what, is, what is John saying here? If that is true then, that's going to be true now. The world is not any different. The world's not any different. And he goes on and he says this. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we know the love of the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I'm telling you. You know, 
I mean, John goes and says things. I mean, I would never say that from the pulpit, but I guess here I am. What's it? No, think about what he just said. He said, you're either loving or you're a murderer. That's what he just said. Stop and read it because we've read it so many times we miss it. You're either loving or you're a murderer. Now, where do we find that? Okay, let's look at what Jesus said. If you, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders may be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, hmm, ever happened to you? Will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, hmm, ever done that? We'll be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool. Nobody's ever said that while you're driving. We'll be liable to hellfire. You know, how many of you know the verse that says, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself? You, know, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second greatest commandment. Do you know the whole verse that that goes in? That's part of a bigger verse. Here it is in Leviticus. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. That's the whole context of that verse. That's what John is contrasting here. You're either living in love or you're a murderer. Whose side are you on? Now look, this is not about living in perfection, okay? It's about him being the perfect one and me abiding in him and growing in him. And when I get angry, when I call someone a fool, when I insult, I take all that and go, Jesus, that's not your nature. Jesus, that's not your character. Jesus, that's not who I am. Because you are inside of me and I give it back to him. And when your brother or when your sister or when your neighbor does that to you, you say, Jesus, that's not who they are. And you love them. And he goes on. By this we know love. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And we could stop there. But he explains what that means in the very next verse. Because most of us think, okay, well, you know, I really haven't had a whole lot of opportunity to, to jump in front of the bus for somebody. So I really can't demonstrate whether I'm loving, right? Well, John has this way of explaining what he means. The next verse. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Laying down your life means all of your life, not just one part of it. This Christian thing's real. John's not playing. Easy scriptures to just read real fast. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Notice what he just did there. So don't let it just be about what you say, but catch this. He doesn't just say by actions. He says deed and truth. I've heard many times people say, well, you know, I I don't really say anything to anybody. I just live it. Well, yeah, we're supposed to live it. But where's the end truth part? Deed and truth. You're not loving if you're not bringing both. Deed and truth. Look, go talk to John. (laughs) It's hard stuff. 
But then he, he gets soft on us. He gets there. This is what he says. Verse 19. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Okay, I love that verse the most. I'll speak for myself because I know nobody else will raise their hand. How many times my heart has condemned me? Lord, have I even ever met you? How many times I've turned away from somebody I could have helped? How many times I've insulted somebody I should have blessed? How many times I've lost my patience when I should have loved? And that was just with my wife. My heart condemns me and God is greater than my heart. You see, what, what is he telling us here? What is he telling us? It's, it's here is Jesus and Jesus has literally made us righteous. And by making righteous and we now have this new nature, I see God's law. It's holy. It's good. It's just, I remember when I recommitted my life to the Lord at the age of 20 and everything around me was just like, I was so excited because God was so good. The fact that he would take me back after nine years of walking in my utter living in my flesh was just so refreshing, just so amazing about his grace. And then I started living through this life and I, and I, and I bump up against struggles over and over and over again. And I go, God, am I ever going to get out of this? God, am I ever going to get free? Lord, what is wrong with me? Why am I broken? And the fact that I'm struggling demonstrates the fact that the Holy Spirit is in me. Because if the Holy Spirit wasn't in me, I would practice it and not care. I just wouldn't care. That's practicing lawlessness. Now, do we need to confess it to one another? Are there ways to get free? Are there ways to press forward? Yes, all the above. But we need to start with the fact, don't think that you're not his because you're struggling. The struggle proves you're his. He's greater than our hearts. And then he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask from him, and whatever we ask from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Here's the two truths for a question, the two, true two tests. Do you believe in the name of the Son of God? And again, it doesn't mean the name. Come on up, Victor. It doesn't mean the name, you know, just saying the name of Jesus. It means, have you met him? Have you seen who he is? Have you come to that embracing of him? And when you do, has that changed your life? And he says, when we do that, when we do that, we will be in communion with him. And we'll begin to pray. And we'll begin to ask, ask for things in this relationship with him. And he'll begin to answer those things. And it will increase. We'll experience him as we step out in faith and what he speaks. And our faith increases and this relationship grows. And whatever that is within that continues to happen and never ceases. And then he finishes up with this. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Listen, guys, this, this fact 
that we've come to have this relationship with Jesus means that there is a person, the person of the Holy Spirit, who has literally come to abide in, in us, with us. And when he does, that means the Father has come. When the Father comes, that means the Son has come. It's all in the scriptures. It's all in it. Go read John 13, 14, 15, 16. It's all there. It's amazingly there. God is literally dwelling with us by the light and the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to embrace him fully. And when we do, we will live this life that looks like him. Looks like what? Loving one another. Loving one another. And that's where we're going to stop this morning. So we have a mission. We have a threefold mission. Threefold mission is this. We need to live the spirit of God. How do we live the spirit of God? Lose your keys and start asking about where they are. But you follow what I mean? It's very practical. It's about constantly having this relationship with him and inviting him into everything you're doing all day long and and then obeying as he's speaking. Number two, we need to do deeds that look like Jesus. What does that mean? Where Do you see suffering around you? Alleviate it. Bring Jesus into the suffering around you. And number three, we need to speak the truth. What is the truth? Jesus is the truth. We have a threefold mission, and it takes all three for us to be living what he's called us to be. And that meets the two tests of, two, two tests of being a Christian, to know who Jesus is and living that way. Amen? Amen. 